This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Hello everyone, I'm Sarah MacDonald and I'd like to acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to the Elders past and present. Welcome to this session of FODI called Water Wars with Alok Jar. Please keep your phone on silent. If you could lower the brightness, that would be great. And if you want to tweet, the hashtag is FODI. So Alok's going to speak. There'll be lots of times for questions at the end and we have microphones that you'll be able to suss out as you're uh, contemplating your question. So when we think Water Wars in Sydney, we think about the battle for a water view, don't we? Really? And being at the Opera House, we've got the ultimate one today out there. But as the UN Deputy Secretary-General said this week for World Water Week, water is peace, water is life, water is dignity. Or as the tipsy Monica Geller says in Friends as she guzzled under the tap, water rules. Alok has an incredible book called Water and it makes you realise just how disconnected and dismissive we are of this essential element of life. He is a London-based journalist and broadcaster who's an award-winning science correspondent for ITM, and the water book takes us on a journey to the massive frozen land of ice in Antarctica, to the moon, the planets, and right down into the hydrogen and oxygen models, molecules that are H2O. So please welcome to the stage, Alok Jha. Thank you, Sarah, and uh, thank you all for coming uh, this afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be here in Sydney. It's the first time I've spoken here, so uh, forgive me if I get a bit nervous or excited. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be in this place. Um, I am, I'm going to speak for half an hour, and then hopefully I'll be able to answer your questions as well about um, this, this substance, which I find fascinating, and I'm hoping that by the end of this session you'll find fascinating as well. Water is something that um, every one of you has interacted with many, many, many times today. Um, whether you've had a shower, you're drinking a cup of tea, um, you're drinking water here before you came into here, um, eating food, whatever. You've interacted with it multiple, multiple times. But I bet you don't really even think about it very much at all. So I want to make you think about it. And I want to make you think about how this world is trying to deal with the fact that we all need much more of it than perhaps we have easy access to. So let's just look at the Earth, first of all. I mean, if you looked at the Earth from space, if you were an alien, you'd, you'd think this is a water planet. Um, the, the little bits of land, the dry land, you know, they're kind of irrelevant almost. The water on the surface of the Earth is, is the most important thing. 70% um, of our surface is covered in it. Life started in the, in the oceans. You know, it thrives there now, and it provides half of the world's oxygen. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that, when we describe the blue marble, our planet, the blue, the ocean, that's almost the most important thing. So we wash with it, we drink it, we eat it. You are two-thirds water. Um, but have you ever wondered what that water does inside your cells? What it is about it that you need so badly? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what water does inside you, why you get thirsty, why it is that uh, all of life on Earth needs this substance. Inside your cells, inside every one of your cells, there's water. In between your cells, there's water. Water is the substance that uh, lets your cell membranes into the right shape. Um, inside your cells, the proteins and the DNA, they don't function if water isn't present. Um, the molecule makes those other big complex things of life 
they make them function properly. When, when a protein is made inside your cell, um, it's constructed as a chain of amino acids, a complex set of molecules. It's a big, long, floppy line. But no protein functions like that. No protein will ever work if it's just a line. But if evolution's been a remarkable thing, because these proteins that we make, some parts of them like water, some parts of them don't like water, and when you make that protein and shove it into the middle of a cell, it automatically folds itself up into a three-dimensional shape where the parts that do like water are on the outside, the parts that don't like water are on the inside, creating the perfect shape. And then that protein can go on and do whatever it needs to do, whether it's build something inside your body or send a message or whatever else. Water also transmits electrical energy from outside to inside cells. It powers what's going on inside there. These are just a few of the things that it's doing inside you. That's why you need to drink water. And that's why all life needs water. In fact, all of life on Earth uses water. Wherever there is water, there is life. And wherever there isn't water, we've not found any life at all. Humans, I think, have always known that water is somehow special. Even if they don't understand the chemistry uh, or the, the, the biology that I've, we understand today, and I've just sort of hinted at, we've always known that there's something special about it. Um, in myths and legends from the first human beings, water always plays some sort of role. If you think back to, if you think back to ancient um, flood myths or the fact that water is used as a cleansing uh, in many rituals, even in the, in, the, in the Bible, in Genesis, you know, God moves over the still waters to create the heaven and the earth. Every... Religion, every myth, every culture has something about water that they knew was special. They venerated in some way. Um, we venerate it in different ways now, whether it's alongside those myths or whether it's with science or whatever else. We still know it's important. But what I like about those myths, what I like about those legends, what I really love about them is that they contain a kernel of truth. They all talk about water being celestial and heavenly. And in fact... It absolutely is celestial and heavenly. It really did. All of our water on the surface of this planet, all the water inside you, it came from space. And to understand how all that came from space, let's just go back to the beginning of the universe, you know, just a casual sort of saunter back to that 13.7 billion years ago when the Big Bang happened. The Big Bang happens, and for a few minutes, because it's so hot, there's nothing that can actually coalesce out of that. It's just energy. It's pure, fiery energy. Three minutes later... There, things have cooled down slightly, it's expanded, and all the hydrogen atoms that will ever exist, all the hydrogen atoms in the universe are created in that first three minutes. And they still exist today, all of them. And you know, of course, and I have to tell you, that the, the chemical symbol for water, H2O, two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom, probably the only uh, chemical symbol that's part of English vernacular, pretty much, I would say, or any vernacular. Um, H2O, so you've got the hydrogen. So where does the oxygen come from? Well, the hydrogen, as it sort of expands through the universe, it doesn't expand very. Uh, it doesn't expand in a completely uniform way. It expands in clumps, and wherever there's a clump or a cloud of hydrogen that's a little bit close together, the gravity brings it all together, and in the center of those clouds, the hydrogen starts to fuse into helium and other elements, releases some energy, and that's what the first generation of stars is. And the star essentially is that: is fusing hydrogen, burning. Over a hundred million, few hundred million years. As the star runs out of fuel, I, you know, all of the hydrogen in the center is eventually uh, burned, burned away, fused away. The star sort of doesn't have anywhere to go, and it explodes. And these explosions are some of the most beautiful objects in space. So you've seen pictures of things like this. This is the, uh, this is the Helix Nebula. And the Helix Nebula is, 
It's about 70-odd um, light years, 700 light years away, and it's a few light years across. Just, it, the, the size of this thing is incredible. It's absolutely enormous. Our solar system is a few light hours across. This is about 50 or four or five light years across. And what you're seeing there is not real colours. They're false colours um, taken um, um, by a, a, probably the Hubble Space Telescope in this case. And what you're seeing is the distribution of elements. So these elements like carbon and oxygen and nitrogen are created in the centres of these stars that I told you about. And then they're thrown into space um, as detritus, as dust, as, as basically um, leftover material as the star dies. And in there, there's lots of oxygen. And it's in here that you get the water that we know of forming. So in a planetary nebula like this one, or perhaps even like this one, the Eagle Nebula, which is one of the more famous ones, it's 7,000 light years away and about four or five light years across. This, this, it's rich, filled with dust and gas. And within there, there's still lots of hydrogen. So new stars will form. New stars will form with that hydrogen. And around them, there's lots of rich material for planets to form. And I mentioned that in there, there's, there's carbon, tiny, tiny, tiny grains of carbon, dust essentially, a thousandth the width of a human hair. And on these tiny grains of carbon, you get oxygen atoms and hydrogen atoms bumping into them in the vacuum of space. Occasionally, both of them will bump into it at the same time. And you get, when that happens, you get a molecule of water. And over hundreds of thousands of years, each of these tiny grains develops a, a sort of film of ice, which the, 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 and these things will float through space and eventually come together as stones, the stones come together as rocks, the rocks come together as boulders, the boulders form the planets. And in a planetary nebula, when our star was forming four and a half billion years ago, this is what happened. And our planets formed, our inner planets at least, formed in this way. The Earth, if you went back four and a half billion years ago, would be pretty unrecognisable. On the surface, there was water, but it was rapidly evaporating away because the surface was so hot, there was so much vol volcanic activity. And if you go back to a certain period of time, you see it's just dry rock. We clearly have oceans, though, so where did they come from? Well, not all of those tiny grains of carbon, not all of those tiny rocks, ended up forming planets. A lot of them just ended up being chucked out the edge of the solar system, and they still exist there today. Um, but about four, about four billion years ago, something disturbed those rocks, disturbed those dust grains, and huge numbers of them, like billions of them, over the course of half a billion years, rained down on the Earth. It's a period of time that geologists call the late heavy bombardment. And for 500 million years, the Earth was bombarded by tiny asteroids and comets, each of which had a tiny amount of water created in space, like I said. And they brought our oceans to our planet. Every single at uh, molecule of water inside you, every single molecule of water on the surface of our planet came from the edge of our solar system. And it's actually younger than the rest of the planet. So today we have one and a half billion cubic kilometers of water on the surface of the planet. Uh, most of it, though, is salty. It's in the oceans, so it's completely inaccessible to us. We don't really do anything with it. Um, and what, of the remainder... Of the remaining 3% remaining or so, which is fresh water, two of those percentage points is frozen in ice caps. And less than 1%, therefore, of the entire volume of water of the Earth, that's uh, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, less than 1%, actually is available for all of life on Earth to share and to build everything that, that actually we do with it. To give you some context, this, this is, here's, here's the Earth, you know, with all its water removed. If you were to take all of the water on the surface of the Earth and 
put it into a ball. This is how big the ball would be. All of the surface of water. And, and that ball is 800 miles in diameter. It's all of the, all of the water on the Earth, everything. Um, and if you want to know how much fresh water there is, there's the fresh water in the corner. Can you see that? That's probably a few hundred miles across. And you probably can't see it on this diagram, so I'll blow it up slightly. There, just on the bottom right, that 40 miles across ball is the water accessible to all of life on Earth for the past three and a half billion years, which has been recycled again and again and again and again. And it's, um, it's not a huge amount at all. We share that with every plant, every animal, everything. Now, humans, as I said, have always venerated water and known that it was something important to them. And, but for most of our history as a species, we've kind of gone wherever the rains have gone. We've, uh, we've depended on, we've, as hunter-gatherers, we've, we've moved around to wherever the waters were. But about 12,000 years ago, when agriculture started to become developed, we started to move water around ourselves and collect it and dig irrigation channels. We wanted to build civilizations. And so cities and empires since then have been built on diverting rivers and moving water over huge distances. Uh, the Roman aqueducts, which are some of the most famous bits of engineering, um, a few thousand years ago, they would move millions of gallons of water um, to satisfy the needs of what was then the biggest city in the world, half a million people in ancient Rome. Around the same time in, in what was ancient Egypt, in Alexandria, Alexandria sat above storage tanks, which were constantly refilled by the Nile. And, you know, the Nile itself, which is one of the most important uh, rivers in the world and is an important source of political power back in Alexandria's time, that was, it was supplying that particular city. And when, when, when these sorts of things were being built uh, there and in other parts of the world, it, they weren't concerned too much about, let's say, efficiency or how much water they were using. They just wanted to get water from one place to another to allow their cities to be built, and if, if a city didn't have access to water, it was quickly abandoned or didn't survive for very long. And it was perhaps fine uh, 6,000 years ago when people started doing these things, 7,000 years ago, when only a million people lived on the Earth. So 6,000 BC, the population of the Earth was about a million people. There's still plenty of water. I, I'm keeping this picture up only just so you can keep reminding yourself how little water there actually is. But that was plenty for those million people. Today, there are seven billion of us, and we haven't created any more water to use. Or there's no more. It's just the same amount. And of course, the amount of agricultural land that we have now is much, much bigger. From 1900 to 1950, the amount of agricultural land actually doubled, and it doubled again from 1950 to 1990, and it's still growing. More than half of the world's population lives in cities, and cities require huge amounts of water to keep running. Um, we've built... Uh, canals and lakes and all sorts of artificial things underground. We don't really see the water that we bring to our cities these days. And as we become more industrialized, we need water for goods. We need water to produce electricity. Water doesn't just flow around us and annoy us when it rains in the, from the skies, but it's actually a part of everything that we touch, taste, and see. It flows through all of it. I mentioned that you know, you've interacted with water today. So you, know, you might have had a shower, you might have drunk water, you might have had food. But most of the water you're going to use today or have used today, you're never going to see. You don't touch it. You don't even come anywhere near it. A kilogram of beef, let's say. So you've had a, not you're going to personally have a kilogram of beef, but a kilogram of beef takes 16,000 litres of water 
to make because it takes that much water to water the plants and to then distribute and grow the cows and so on. A cup of tea. A cup of tea, the water footprint of that is 35 litres. Um, a sheet of paper is 10 litres. A microchip is 30. Don't worry, I'm not going to start listing loads more numbers. But a kilogram of cotton, that's my last one, 10,000 litres of water on average. In some places, parts of the world, it's even more than that. Around 70% of the water, fresh water on, this, on, this, on the earth is used for agriculture in some form, uh, whether it's growing wheat or maize or rice, or whether it's food for us or livestock. A large part of the rest is used to generate power um, or for industry, to make goods, to transfer things. And most of that uh, water use happens in the richer nations, as you might expect. Um, Americans use about 600 litres of water a day on average, um, Europeans and actually Australians as well, about 250-ish litres of water a day. Compare that to the billion people living in many parts of the developing world who use about 19 litres of water and double that population that don't actually have access to basic sanitation. And you can already start to see then, given that if places like China and India, as their populations increase, as their populations want to have a better standard of living, they want to eat more protein-rich diets, they will need much, much more water to supply that standard of living. They were going to need more power, more water for their power sectors too. So there's going to be a need for even more water than we've seen already. And as there's another thing that will stress everyone else, which is that as temperatures rise around the world because of climate change, it'll wreak havoc on agricultural lands. It'll force certain parts of the world to have too much water and certain parts of the world to not have enough water which means people have to move. People cannot live if they can't grow crops in their area. Um, there are already examples of situations where drought is causing very localised problems. Last year, a heatwave in India caused the deaths of several thousand people, because, and water shortages there exacerbated those problems. In the Brazilian city of Sao Paulo last year, um, there was a drought, which is home to about 20 million people, there was a drought that led to people there in what is traditionally known as the, as the city of drizzle, uh, the, the drought got so bad that residents had to be, began drilling through their basements through, and through the ground in car parks to try and reach groundwater. This, these are sort of individual, small-scale examples of things that are going to increase as people get realise that the water that they've had so easily accessible, the water we don't even think about how it gets here, that stuff will become much, much more complicated and difficult to get hold of. In 2002... NASA sent up a pair of satellites to measure the gravity field of the Earth. Now, why do they want to do that? Well, actually, that's a very good way of looking at how water moves around the surface of the Earth. By looking at the changes in the gravity field, you can look at how water moves. And what they found was that um, in the years between 2003 and 2010, in some parts of the Middle East, uh, around the Euphrates River, for example, 144 cubic kilometers of fresh water, which is about the volume of the Dead Sea, it disappeared. Most of it disappeared because it was drilled out of the uh, ground in the groundwater. There are aquifers there, there's groundwater there, stuff that's been sitting there for a long time, which is the backup, if you like, of any sort of region. Normally, if you think about rains coming from uh, surface water, then these things are recyclable. But groundwater, aquifers, are things that have been there for a very, very long time. They don't get replenished so easily. 
They were being drilled into because of droughts in those areas. And a huge amount had completely disappeared and gone, become unavailable. Farmers were there were facing drought, so they pumped out the groundwater. The Iraqi government actually drilled nearly a thousand wells to try and exacerbate the problem. These are short-term solutions which have very, very long-term impacts. And using the data from the GRACE satellites, NASA has concluded that the amount of desperate water withdrawal from these aquifers because of the, the amount of people, the amount of drought, the weather patterns changing, They've, noticed, they've said that 13 of the 37 largest aquifer systems in the world, and there are only 37, 13 of them, one-third of them, are becoming so rapidly depleted that um, there's no possible way that they can get re recharged in any sort of human time scale. And this is a problem. This is the stuff of tension. This is the stuff where if, if they run out, if, if they're the kinds of things that disappear, then we've got nothing left. So you can't magic up water from nowhere. You have to essentially move your people. You have to move. People will argue about access to water, and they do, and they have done for, uh, for thousands of years. Take, the, again, the Middle East, which is some of the places where humankind has been for the longest, but also they've argued for the longest about war. There are many ideological, religious, geographical, political disputes in this part of the world. It's a part of the world that's incredibly arid, and every major river here crosses international boundaries. And even as far back as the 7th century BC, there were Assyrian kings who would try and divert rivers to seize control of different parts of Arabia. In more modern times, control of the Jordan River and the Jordan River Basin has been at the root of conflicts since the 1940s. Um, the Jordan itself is a relatively small river, but it's shared by many, many nations that will often fight with each other. Jordan, Syria, Israel, Lebanon. And because of those political the, the volatile politics and the volatile military dynamics, and there's no other source of water, you can see there that water becomes the contributing factor to a lot of problems. One of the um, academics will tell you that um, the uh, 1967 war um, was essentially started, or a large part of it was caused by the Arab League trying to divert the headwaters of the Jordan away from Israel. And of course, you know, a country that, in that part of the world that doesn't have any access to water, a country like that will die. Now, today, water stress by itself is unlikely to be the cause of a, of a government falling. But it's definitely going to be something that threatens food production. It threatens energy supply. And it will put stress on places and governments that already have social, uh, social tensions. Uh, U.S. intelligence agencies are obsessed with water. And they, they point to um, places where they, 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 they think that Tensions might arise which might cause the US and, you know, all of us problems. So they point to the Nile, the Tigris-Euphrates, the Mekong, the Jordan River, the Indus, the Brahmaputra over in, towards India. Here, they say, water shortages could risk instability and state failure and increase regional tensions. Uh, one example of that was um, in the recent years, Ethiopia has wanted to build an enormous dam, the Renaissance Dam, on a tributary of the Nile. For to, to essentially give itself power, electricity, but also to provide its farmers with agriculture. Egypt, of course, is not happy about this because it controls the Nile, it thinks. And traditionally, in the accord signed in the 20s, when the British left, Egypt has control of this, over this river. For a long time, they argued, and Egypt even unofficially talked about military intervention of some sort, which is a terrifying idea. The Ethiopians wouldn't back down. But cooler heads did prevail last year when Ethiopia 
Egypt and Sudan signed a deal to make sure that the Renaissance Dam wouldn't affect, or at least they said, wouldn't affect the flow of water through Egypt. Now, that's something that is yet to be, remain to be seen when it's built. In any case, military conflict is not something that in modern times you see as a result of, as a result of water stress. And even if that was the case, it seems like there are probably mechanisms we'd use to get around it. If two countries are about to go to war, there are institutions set up specifically to stop them doing these sorts of things. International institutions, the UN, etc. Whereas most people who worry about conflicts over water worry about them happening within countries. So, with, for example, businesses versus their citizens, or governments versus their citizens in some way, or citizens versus each other. Acts of terror might happen as a result. And there, there's a lot less international governments and so on and groups can do to actually deal with those sorts of tensions. By the middle of this century, the United Nations has predicted that four billion people will live in situations where there's water stress, by which means they don't have enough water for not only their daily um, uh, bathing and eating purposes, but also to make their goods, provide their electricity. Four billion people. And if you think the predictions for Population around that sort of time are around the eight, nine billion around the world. And climate models also show that as global temperatures rise, extreme droughts will increase in parts of the tropics. It will lead to failed crops. Almost a third of the current agricultural land in the, in the world will be at risk by the end of this century. There are going to be mass migrations of people. They are going to go where the food is. Even before the movement of Syrian refugees, uh, in the last few years, the European Union, the European Commission, scientists in, uh, in those places were already engaged in, in considering what's going to happen as a result of climate change in terms of move movement of people. They're expecting lots and lots of people from the, the southern Mediterranean, the northern Africa, to move upwards uh, into, into Europe as a result of climate change, as a result of environmental degradation in their parts of the world and lack of water. The wet areas of the world are getting wetter, High altitudes, like, high latitudes rather, like the Arctic and some parts of the tropics. The middle latitudes, the semi-arid areas, the places we already know that are stressed, are going to get even drier. The Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, they're all projected to increase, experience huge water shortages over the coming years, because of, not only because of climate change, but because of decades of management, bad management and overuse. Now, we've used water to build our world and not really thought much about how we waste it or where the resource comes from. But remember, that resource is not increasing. It's not changing in any way whatsoever. It's only getting more and more restricted as we pollute parts of it and put it out of circulation, in fact. We've used it unthinkingly for the entire history of human civilization. And mostly until now, we seem to have got away with it. We're now racing dangerously, I think, towards the end of that complete water-rich era. Thanks very much. That's a bit depressing, isn't it? <laughs> be more cheerful. Okay. As we swig from our water, we're lucky to have. Um, now, we have got some microphones. That, uh, we've got one upstairs, and the other one is down here. So as you um, 
as you absorb uh, into your system what uh, Alok's been talking about and you come up with a question, do feel free to slowly make your way to the microphone and, um, and you can ask it to him. I will ask that it be a question in case we have lots of them. Um, given that the topic's called Water Wars, though, before we get to the audience questions, um, You've, you've said there's already conflict over water and you talked about some of the areas where there'll be and there'll be internal um, within countries as well. I've heard of a new, a new term this week which was water diplomacy about something that the, for World Water Week that we need to focus on. Where are we using water diplomacy well and how well is it working? So the examples I gave, um, say for example the... Euro, the Ethiopia and Egypt example of a, a country that wants to build something that will affect someone else. This is kind of a classic problem around the world. Rivers, water basins, they don't respect national boundaries um, and what one country does has huge effects on another. And it's in their interest ultimately to work together on this. You know, nowadays, um, I say this cautiously, but nowadays you generally don't get countries just invading each other for the sake of taking over that entire land. Um, if, if there is an argument over something, then they, those countries will have to live next to each other anyway at some point. So it, it makes no sense to essentially cut off water supplies or anything else. When you talk about water diplomacy, I, in my experience, um, what we're seeing in the last few years is an increasing amount of environmental diplomacy going on as a general so I was at Paris last year in December at the COP21 climate talks where governments around the world came together to try and work out a way of, of, uh, of tackling this horrendous problem of climate change that we've kind of created for ourselves. And over 20 years, this culminated last December in an agreement to work, out, work, work together to do something about it. Now, weirdly, they didn't mention water at all in that entire conversation. But... And people ask me this, you know, isn't that disappointing, right? So that might be your next question, isn't that disappointing? Because they talked about carbon, they talked about energy, they talked about forests, they talked about, you know, uh, poverty, all these things. But didn't mention water. I don't think it's actually necessary to have a specific strand of diplomacy about it because water is such a layer in all your society. Whether you're talking about energy, you're talking about water. When you're talking about food, that's basically just water with a few bits of other stuff in it being moved around. I mean, it is, really is. That's all it is. Um, if you're talking about agriculture, that's, again, it's just water. Yeah. Uh, all these things have slightly different economic reasons. And the discussions about water are discussions about economics, they're discussions about landscapes, they're discussions about food. So we don't necessarily need water diplomacy in itself, except, except to say that it's something we should be aware of much, much more. And it should be something that fires us to do something about making sure your farms aren't using too much water or that you're not farming in a place where you're wasting water. I mean, in many parts of this country, and I was in New Zealand last week, doing really, I would say, interesting in inverted commas things about making certain parts of, their country, of the country, which shouldn't really be farmland, making it into farmland for economic reasons. Now, that's completely backwards. And that's where you, citizens like us, have to sort of go, right, okay, this is, that's our shared water resource that you're wasting, you know. Well, it might interest you to know there's talk about um, turning as all Australia's, you know, the, Australia, the rivers go to the sea and there's some schemes to turn our rivers inland, which, you know, kind of grand schemes. How's that going to work for the ecology <laughs> of this nation? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Someone needs to think about that. So you can make things a lot worse. So have there been calculations, you have that little powerful dot up there, that tiny dot on that map, have there been calculations yeah. of how many people that can 
serve? How you know a world that that can serve? There, has there been calculations well, about that? Well, how that... No, no, but but the thing is that this it's more than enough for. It should be. It, it really is because we use. I mean, if you think about it, um, if you think about um, an, another analogy, um, in your house, maybe 20 years ago, you might have had 10 light bulbs that used up a megawatt of electricity between them. You think, oh, I need that because I've got 10 light bulbs and they're filament light bulbs and so on. Nowadays, you don't think twice about using LEDs or compact fluorescents and things, provide the same amount of light, they're good, and they probably use one hundredth of that energy. So when we think we need to use X amount of water for something, and therefore that little dot is going to support this many people, we're thinking about it in our terms now. And in fact, we could probably support lots more people if we're just more clever about it. And so, and so those calculations will always be changing. changing. Yeah. The, the, the other limiting factors on the, on the planet are, um, you know, if we have 9 billion people, there are other resource factors that are going to cause problems. Land use, um, the, amount of, uh, the amount of energy we need is going to be obviously enormous. So they say that um, if we get to about 9 billion people, we're really going to be seeing the Earth creaking, um, and you need about two or three planet Earth's worth of resource, generally environmental resource. So either you don't have 9 billion people, <laughs> which you know, t t tries to tell people to stop having babies and things, which is difficult, or you find much, much more efficient ways to live. We can't all use 600 litres of water a day like the Americans do. You know? um, and there are people in the developing world who use almost none, and they should be allowed to use more. Mm. So in a sense, we have to reduce our water use so that others can go further. And I think that that, that, but that water is being recycled constantly. As long as we're not polluting it, it will always be there, and it's plenty. Yeah, but at the same time, as you said, we, we are using more of it, and we're replenishing these massive aquifers under the earth at an alarming rate that can't be replenished. So is the pressure come, coming from bad use, pollution, yeah. climate change? What are the most climate factors that are all, most accelerating this push even to these ancient reserves? It, it's, it's a bit like a death of a thousand cuts, actually. Every single thing by itself is not going to be um, the, th the, the, the silver bullet that destroys your access to water. It's the fact that there are so many people. That's the biggest problem. Uh, that's, uh, that's one thing. If, if there were only a million people on the Earth, we could do what we liked and it, the Earth would be fine. It would recycle itself. And the Earth is very good at cleaning itself, recycling itself. And even when it comes to climate change, the Earth will be fine. It's the people on it that won't be fine, and the cities on it that won't be fine, and the life on it that won't be fine. If we want the ecology and the environment, of which we are stewards, to remain the way it is, and, and species not to destroy it, be destroyed, then we have problems. The Earth will be fine. The Earth will be okay. Its water will clean itself, but it might take a lot longer than we can wait to do it. Mm. Um, I've seen that, you know, the, the water mining of towns in America... For, by companies who for bottled water, and it's been compared to the you know the the oil rush, and we've had conflicts um, near Sydney. We had Mangrove Mountain about bottled water. What are the repercussions of corporatizing water? You write about this a bit. Um, I, I I mean, if I can be frank, I mean the idea of drilling into the ground or even going to places like Antarctica or the Arctic and taking away icebergs and selling to you as water. I mean, if you're going to be mug enough to buy that stuff, then fine, go for it. But that's a, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing to do because it takes up a lot of energy to do it. And so every bit of energy you use and every tiny gram of carbon that goes into the atmosphere makes the problem worse in the future. 
Uh, you've got to think about it. And, and again, because climate and environment, all these things are cumulative effects, um, every single thing that happens like this, every single wasteful thing that happens adds up. And you know how we talk in, a, in from, from our points of view, you, people, you might decide not to fly somewhere because, uh, it, the, because of the carbon footprint of fly, flying, or you might decide to buy locally because of the carbon footprint of the food or whatever. These things are important, and you might think, oh, well, one person doesn't make a difference. Well, actually, one person does make a difference because there are nine billion of us, and it multiplies up. I think that for companies that um, do what you're talking about, drilling into very ancient water sources or selling bottled water at incredibly inflated prices, I, to be honest, it's such a small thing, as in, like, the, the, the industry's tiny, and most of us probably aren't... <laughs> aren't uh, gullible enough, I hope, to, uh, sorry to say, to, to, to make that market a huge one. If it starts to become bigger, then I'll get worried about it. But really, it's not that it's big. It's not a huge factor. I, I wouldn't have thought so. But mm. I would encourage people here, certainly, not to do that. Sure. I mean, given that the, the unpredictability of, of climate change, it's... Um, for instance, in Sydney, we built a desalination plant some years ago because the prediction was that Sydney's climate would get drier. Mm. What's happened is our um, dam is full, very full at the moment, and we sort of have a, having more of a tropical climate. It's sort of like doesn't rain, doesn't rain, pours like you know, and for, for days. And so we built the desalination plant on one prediction, and then there was criticism that we're using and we shouldn't really need it, and it's using power. So given the unpredictability of it, and and its impact on water. In, 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 in certain areas and, and local areas, how do we prepare for such different eventualities that are so unpredictable? Well, climate change is a long-term process. So we're talking about um, predictions being made about the middle or the end of the century. And so these are very, very far away. Uh, of course, you need to prepare well before then, and you can see directions, but nothing is ever guaranteed. Whereas we know overwhelmingly scientifically that climate change is happening, it's much more questionable about the extent of what's happening where and how local the effects mm. are going to be. It's very, very hard to do those models, and those models are getting better. As computers get better, as the computer models get better, you can get to much more finer resolution. But we can't think of this as a weather forecast, um, in a sense, um, uh, that, that in five years' time, a certain place will definitely have this. They're essentially, it's essentially a random set of variables that overall average out to predictability. So it's very, very much harder to predict um, local things. Now, you can, take a, you can take a calculated risk. You can take a, an educated guess. And I think that's what all of us can do. We know that this part of the world is going to get drier. Uh, we, that's, that we know is going to happen. And increasingly, you're finding that... Um, uh, storms across the Atlantic or floods in my country, in the UK, you can attribute those things to climate change. We know that they're going to get wetter. They're whatever. getting more extreme. Extreme. Events, that, means yeah. that, we, that means that even if you know that your flood might have happen only once every 30 years, or in fact there might be a heat wave for three years in a row, in the long term the overall trend is that way. So you need to build flood defences or you need to make sure that your houses are not built on floodplains or you have some sort of flood management system. Same here. If if the predictions, and I think the, these are correct, are that it's going to get drier, the fact that there's a few years of water doesn't make a difference. It's the average that counts. Mm. And you might have huge variations in that average. Yeah. That's how we should interpret those climate models and climate um, predictions. Mm. And the variations get, Absolutely. get bigger. And having a desalination plant is interesting because uh, some parts of the world, people always ask me, can you increase the amount of fresh water we have? And the only way of really doing that is desalination, which is to take that 97%, which we never use, <laughs> which is in the oceans, and chuck the salt out of it and use it. I mean, that's, that's 
viable technologically, but it's very expensive, not only from an economic point of view, but from an energy point of view. And if you're doing it with fossil fuel electricity, then there's no point, really, because, I mean, that's just making everything worse. So if you can do it sustainably, using solar power or, or other types of green energy, and it, it doesn't seem like a bad idea. But to be honest with you, it's probably cheaper and easier to reduce the use of water than build something like that. But um, I think it's quite a progressive thing to do, to build a desalination plant if you can do it with green electricity, because you never know when you might need it. Don't think it's with green electricity, anyone knows. <laughs> well, if it isn't, that's, it's coal there's, powered. There's, no point, there's absolutely no point in that. So what, yeah. yeah, but interesting. So we could see massive solar-powered desalination plants. In the Middle East? That's the idea. In the Middle East, of course, they are uh, places like Saudi Arabia uh, and, and Dubai and, and UAE and stuff like that. They know that oil's running out, and they're actually weirdly quite progressive about it. So they, they, they know that they're going to have to find energy in, in other ways. They've got tons of it just falling on to their heads. So for them, concentrated solar power, solar panels, those sorts of green electricity type things are things they can build at scale. Solar power is now so dirt cheap and, and it's something which um, you know, is really coming into its own uh, after a long time when it was too expensive. Uh, so, so places like that, they have desalination plants. California has desalination plants, places where there's lots of electricity. That makes sense to have desalination plants run by solar power there. And so look, look to the Middle East, which is something I never thought I'd say about uh, <laughs> sensible energy use, but look to them, there are good examples. Yeah, invention um, due to necessity. Um, if people have got questions, please start. Oh, we have, good. Okay, terrific, that's fantastic. Um, the, I, what I find interesting, I'll just ask one more, is that you kind of look intergalactically in this book and, and you talk about water on the moon and, and the poles of Mars and the like. I mean, is there, looking way into the future, a way of getting water from outer space or yeah. are we going to have to go out to be in places? Well, um, that's with water. The, the, it's, there is water on almost every body in our solar, solar system. We've only discovered this in the last few decades. We thought it was a relatively rare thing. It's not at all. Water's literally common as muck. It's everywhere. Um, and it's, a quite, it's because it's quite a simple molecule, H2O. Um, but what it's done is quite remarkable on our Earth. It's created life. It's created civilization. If you like, it's created us to appreciate it. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing for many, many reasons. Um, and it's everywhere. So it's on the poles of Mercury, which is the planet closest to the sun, which makes no sense. It's so hot oh, on there. Yeah. But in the shadows, it, it exists. They found mountains of water ice on Pluto just last year. Um, Mars has it under the surface. Sometimes it's even running on the surface. Um, it's everywhere. Um, now, uh, to answer your question, I don't... Th and as I said, every asteroid and comet is also full of water. Um, it's unlikely that it would be ever economical to go to another place bring the water back because there is plenty of water here it's probably going to be cheaper to go the desalination route first <laughs> to be honest and remember desalination we said and then we said we said it was expensive but what's what's great about the fact there's water everywhere is if you decide to go and live on mars or on an asteroid or on jupiter or whatever else you can't live on jupiter but if you on pluto <laughs> uh, then uh, or enceladus these moons of jupiter uh, jupiter yeah there's lots of water there and you don't need to take it with you and if you know one thing about life elsewhere if you're going to go and live elsewhere you need water so it's good that it's there already mm. and interesting how nasa is following the water to find right. life on in the solar water system. is the signifier we know that on this planet everywhere that there's water there's life and there's no life without water so that's what they've been looking for everywhere that's how they're searching for life uh, if you've got a question make your way to the microphone please come right up to the microphone or we won't be able to hear you yes 
I've become interested in urban water policy and was horrified to discover that when we do have heavy rains, which we do have more often in Sydney and other cities, a huge proportion, 60-80% of it, simply runs off. It can't soak through concrete or asphalt or roofs unless you have water tanks from the roofs, but mostly we don't. So the, the vast majority of the water that does come from the sky is wasted. It goes straight into the sea. Is there something we can do to stop that? Yeah, to there is, of course. Catch it? Yeah, uh, there are places around the world that do really well in storing that stuff. Um, places that have to, had to deal with excess water um, much more. It, these, these innovations are always about necessity in the end. If you don't have to do anything about it, you won't do anything about it. Building huge cities with hard surfaces um, is comfortable for human beings to live in, but actually it means that where water normally would want to go if it rains, it just it can't go to those places. So either the place floods or it runs off into the sea and isn't stored. Uh, as you just mentioned. Um, I went to Rotterdam in the Netherlands uh, last, earlier this year, in fact. And this is a, city, this is a country where m most of it is, under, is under below sea level. And they have to deal with water really, really... They, they're really clever at dealing with water. Not only making sure it doesn't flood every single city that uh, comes along. Every, every, every single time the, the rain goes a bit, a bit higher than normal, they could potentially get completely flooded. So they're very good at dealing with that. But also storing the, the, the water as well. So in Rotterdam, for example, their city has been really built to soak up water and use it. So, for example, they've got, first of all, um, you know, uh, they've got huge tidal barriers and things like that, flood defences, that's one thing. But then also, they've got lots of places for the water to go and soak into the ground. So then they've actually taken away lots of the concrete. Another thing they've done, in the centre of town, they have uh, features like um, they've got a sunken basketball court, which looks like a basketball court with you know, rake seats and stuff, but actually it's a storm drain as well. So when water comes along, it, the water sort of, um, when it, as a, if, if there's too much water, it, it goes on the surfaces of the roads and down the sewers, and actually it'll be stored in this basketball court for as long as it takes to then go away again. And they store it. And they use that water, and it, and when it's dry, do they use them as basketball? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, it drains away quite. It drains away slowly. Really? So the point is that they can then deal with that water, and it doesn't flood the surface. The water's got somewhere to go when there's too much water, but actually, when there's not enough as well, they, they can store this stuff and use it. They're incredible. They're absolutely geniuses at dealing with water. They have to be. They absolutely have to be. Their country wouldn't exist if they weren't. And maybe here, that's not the case. So. You know, necessity might force innovations like that. I'd recommend a trip to the Netherlands anyway. But go to Rotterdam if you're interested <laughs> in that. I'd, we'd all like to go, I'm sure. Yes, you had a question. So my question is regarding the corporatization of water. Um, we're talking about water in like a really idealistic sense that people want to share this resource. But Nestle, as a super corporation, for example, I think they own like 30 different brands of water bottles in America, which is like shipped worldwide. And California is experiencing one of its worst droughts in like human record. And Nestle has a deal, as far as I'm aware, with the federal government where they don't disclose how much water they're bottling into their storage. So I'm worried in the context that water prices are going to become inaccessible. Like it's not the question of whether governments and people want to share it, it's whether corporate corporations are going to completely take control over water and also governments like the Flint, Michigan water pollution, for example, like 
how can we com combat that as individuals and as countries on a global scale so that we could go towards a future where everyone does have access to clean drinking water? Well, so um, I think um, there's quite a lot of stuff in that, in that question, but what it comes down to, again, is what I said towards the end, water wars, if you like, are not going to be between nations. They're not sort of these militaristic sort of things that perhaps you might think of when you, when you hear about them. They are going to be within nations. It's about corporatization, essentially. It's about arguments within, between citizens and governments. Um, uh, governments that want to um, allow companies to do what they do because you know, that's how you create jobs and increase your economy and stuff. Um, they're going to have to allow companies to extract water and use it and export it and do all these things with it. Um, unfortunately, the, 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 the problems with politics and I would say low-level corruption on this is, is that um, for many politicians who never actually see the results of the lack of water because they're, you know, they're, they're not the poorest in their society they're, they're, and if the water has disappeared, then they're not going to see the results of that. For them, selling off to large companies is not going to be a big deal. For them, it seems like that's a, that's a, that's a job creator. But you're absolutely right. The big companies do have a responsibility and many of them are starting to take corporate sort of responsibility around water very seriously. I think Coca-Cola recently said that it's... Um, I don't know if I believe this, but it's, uh, it announced that uh, it, was it, had it was water neutral now um, in, in its global operations. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it was a big announcement that they made. The point is, even if they're thinking about it, this is actually a step in the right direction. This is how tragic we are in that situation. Um, with Flint, the problem there is essentially bad management. A lot of the problems with local water is bad management. It's not that there isn't enough of it, it's that people don't manage it properly. Uh, water pipes aren't maintained, you know, pollution gets into the wrong places. And in that case, what, what I found interesting about that is that essentially you had authority after authority, people who were meant to be protecting the public, failing in their duty to report what was happening. And that was a scandal, not about water, that was a scandal about people in authority not looking after their citizens. That's a different thing, I think. Um, but but being, being aware of it, vocal about it, has got to be the first step of that, right? Um, but is, there, oh, is, this um, is there anything we can do to fight back as individuals against corporations like Nestle? Like, what can we do? Well, I mean, that's a tough question. But I would argue that there are NGOs that, uh, that, that organise action against these sorts of things. Uh, being aware of them, um, you know, I think raising awareness is important. Most people don't care. I think that's the problem, and that's why there's not enough political pressure, until this becomes a political issue, until people see the water in that they're using or not using or being, that's being polluted, it doesn't become a political issue. And politicians won't do water politics seriously until we take water seriously, I think. Right. So Let's go to a question up at number one, please. Thank you. Thanks for your question. I was just wondering, I, I've just come back from Lombok and I was out there looking at a pearl farm and, um, and the people in the pearl farm were showing, telling me that a lot of the pearls in the South Pacific aren't actually reaching adult stage because of the acid in the water in the South Pacific. And, and I guess I have a question. I was working water quality for a little while and, and although we have water constantly, you know, the amount of water stays within the, the system, my question is, I guess I've got two questions. This is the first one. Um, what about the quality of the water, though? Because I think... We, most of us grow to assume water's always going to be there. But I think, isn't there an issue about the quality of that water? Yeah. I mean, I was down in South Australia um, a few years ago when the drought was in place and irrigators were putting all their stuff into the Murray Darling 
and it was flowing out at South Australia, and I saw fish upside down, crabs upside down, dead, because all they could do to get water was eat the sand. Um, and the quality of water in Goolga was appalling. Okay. And if you taste the water in Adelaide, if anyone has, it's terrible. Yeah. But the scientists are very bright, they're doing their best. But what do you think about the quality of the water? Well, that, that's always going to be an issue in... See, so you know, the tiny dot that I showed you about the water that's available to all of us, yeah, that's fixed. But then the way you dent into that is is by taking water out of circulation because it's polluted in some way uh, or it's, it essentially isn't livable. So, for example, if, um, if a, a lake uh, becomes a dead zone, essentially, where you have lots of fertiliser runoff and algae blooms in there, takes out all the oxygen, it becomes dead. There's nothing that can really live in there and it's useless. It, it becomes, it's, sort of, it's taken out of circulation in some respects. And if you do this enough, or if you pollute them enough, uh, like in the flint, for example, or, or whatever else, if you pollute enough of it, then that tiny, tiny dot that we saw starts to shrink ever so slightly around the world. And so water quality is incredibly important. And the only solution to that is monitoring, regulation, and constant upgrading of facilities, unfortunately. It's quite a boring answer, I know. But that's what you have to do. But I think, like with desal, it puts a lot of brine back into the ocean, and our oceans are becoming more and more acidic. And I think a lot of people well, the think oceans we can are, fall back on desal. The oceans are becoming acidic for... Uh, the, the main reason oceans are becoming acidic is because of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's another example of what happens. So when, when, when you have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there is greenhouse, the greenhouse effect, of course, but a lot of that carbon dioxide dissolves into the water and the pH of the water goes up, and that causes problems. And acidification of the oceans is a huge problem around the world, causing problems for coral reefs, causing problems for anything that has a shell. It just doesn't function anymore and it can't build its own shells, and they disintegrate. So that's, that's a massive problem on a global scale. Um, local pollution stuff, which is the stuff you're talking about, is, is definitely a water management issue. Uh, water acidification, I think, is a much more global, you know, um, climate change type issue. Okay. Um, water does Let's move all around the world, doesn't it? The of course, do. yeah. So it's all interconnected through water. Can I, um, we'll come one, one more down here to number two. Thank you. Right. What, what's your view of the uh, long-term effect of fracking on the water table, both on the function of water tables and on the quality of the water? Well, it can't be good, can it? Um, I don't know, because we, we don't have any evidence either way, but um, the, the chemicals and the sort of the leaking of hydraulic fracturing into the water table is, is you've got to be concerned about it. Now, I'm not anti-technology. You know, I think that if you can, if there are efficient, clean ways of getting energy out of somewhere, then and if there's jobs there, you know, you can't kind of just say no to them. I mean, for me, the biggest argument against frac hydraulic fracturing, fracking, is um, is the fact that you're using essentially fossil fuels still, and we should really be thinking about other things. Yeah. Um, but yes, that's going to cause all sorts of problems in localities, and which is why. There's been so much argument against it in places like, in my country at least, they've, it's kind of, there's a moratorium, you can't do it uh, in most places. There's some testing going on in parts of the north. No one really wants it. It's, it's going to cause all sorts of horror. Mm. I mean, I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a, uh, an apocalyptic and environmentalist in that sense, <laughs> but I can't see anything good coming out of it. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of concern here. So, I mean, you th you've written this beautiful book, which um, you're going to be signing in the foyer after this session, which uh, looks into uh, to water and, and how we 
how much we take it for granted and you're urging us to re-examine our relationship with water so we recognise it for such a vital element that is in our survival. Have you got ideas for doing that? I thought it was interesting when you were talking about, you know, cotton takes this many gallons and this takes this. Do we not, I don't know, do we need labelling? So this product took this much Why not? water or... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, what are some ways we can re-examine that well, relationship look, I mean, and understand the cost? I think people now are starting to get much more familiar with the idea of a carbon footprint, right? Yeah. So we know what our carbon footprints are if you're kind of engaged with something. And it gives you a way of... It gives you a handle on your impact upon the environment. And it's, it's, it's not a perfect thing by any means. But a water footprint is also really important. I mean, it's almost like until now, we forgot that we use water for things. We completely ignore it, and it's free, and it's available, and there's no cost to it. And just like we've made carbon into something a bit more precious, and it's a bit more, we have a bit of an ambivalent relationship, it's dangerous, but also we need to use it in some respects, we need to make our um, use of water much more visible. Make it much, much more visible. And like I said, most of you will not have thought about the water that you've used today. And um, if you just thought, if you just literally sat down with the water you've used today, you'd be a gobsmacked. Um, and you could probably think of a 10 ways of reducing that yourself. But unless you think about it, you're never going to do it. So yeah, a water footprint calculator would be great. Um, you could probably do that on every single pair of jeans or whatever else. Unfortunately, the thing is that this is going to be one of those industrial level solutions, right? Um, so there's probably going to be little bits you can do to reduce your own water use, but to, if you're going to buy a pair of jeans, then you're going to buy a pair of jeans. And unless you can put pressure on companies to grow cotton nearby, which is not going to happen, it's going to be very difficult to reduce that usage. Computers, um, huge, amounts, huge amounts of water to make. Again, you're not going to buy computers based on that. I, find, I, th I think it's going to be difficult. So it's going to be something which we have to pressure our corporations, our governments, those sorts of people to, to regulate. Uh, it's difficult, but at least being aware of it, which you weren't before now, that's a really good start. Mm -hmm. And I think that you, you've very much got us on that path. You're going to do write to us next about earth, wind and fire? <laughs> you know what, I've been asked that question and uh, I've, my, uh, my answer is yes, but it's not actually going to be about earth, wind and fire, it's going to be a history of 70s disco. Uh, uh, <laughs> all in one go. <laughs> Thirsty work, disco. Uh, so all goes together. Uh, thank you, Alok Jal. Um, Alok will be signing books in the foyer if you'd like to talk to him in more depth. And uh, it's a beautiful looking book and really fascinating. It goes right from the massive, massive ice cliffs of Antarctica where you got stuck in a boat um, <laughs> all the way down to the individual molecules of water. So I urge you to have a look at it. It's called The Water Book and uh, he'll be in the foyer signing it. Please thank him today. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.